come in and didn't get a copy of our notes, or if you're visiting with us and didn't know to get your notes, please put a cop- put your hand up. And someone will bring you a copy of our notes so you can follow along and see where we're headed. <clears throat> My brother and I were travelling along in a car one day, having a chat and conversing and talking about all sorts of interesting things, and then we fell silent for about 30 seconds, looked out at the view, and we both said, hmm. And then we turned to each other and said, well, what did you say hmm about? And my brother said, I noticed as we drove past an optometrist shop that I've never seen before, and they're advertising a brand of sunglasses that I've never seen before. My brother's an optometrist. And he said to me, and what did you see? And I said, well, as we drove past that same block, I saw a church that I'd never seen before with a sign out the front, and I thought to myself, I wonder what denomination that church belongs to. The two of us had grown up in the same house. We had the same parents. We had the same experiences. We looked at the same scene and saw completely different things. I didn't notice the optometrist shop next to the church, and he didn't notice the church next to the optometrist shop. We looked at the same thing, two people, same view, different conclusions. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been talking about Jesus' words and what it is to say the kingdom of God come, and every week we read to remind ourselves of Jesus' important words. Let's say them together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And, of course, Jesus tells us what kind of a king he is and what kind of a kingdom it will be by reminding us that he is the servant king. Let's read together Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The kingdom of God is close by, Jesus said, and people need to make a decision. People have decisions to make, to repent and believe or to reject and walk away. And as we've walked, (coughs) pardon me, as we have worked our way through the gospel of Mark, Jesus has encountered many different people. Some have responded positively and excitedly to Jesus. Others have been a bit more wary a bit cautious, and still others have been downright hostile. And at this point in the gospel story, we are just a few days before Passover, before Jesus will be arrested and hung on a cross to die. And Jesus has been interacting with his most aggressive opponents, the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And having been rejected by them, he leaves the temple in chapter 13, and tells his disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed and desecrated, and the whole religious system of their day will be torn down and removed. We spent a number of uh, Sundays, number of sermons, we spent a number of Sundays in Mark chapter 13, and then in the book of Revelation, as we dealt with Jesus and what he said in chapter 13. But today we return to Mark's gospel full-time, Because the religious leaders who have been in conflict with Jesus all week, all this holy week since chapter 11, which for us has taken four months, this week, they've been in conflict with him all week, have now had enough. And they decide to plot and scheme to arrest and kill. 
And so chapter 14 opens this way. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Jesus has been open in the temple all week. He has in many ways taken over the temple courtyard for his teaching. But the chief priests, that is the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law, that is the Pharisees, have not made a move against him. It would be too public. It would cause a riot and bring the Roman garrison down on their heads. They decide they need to get rid of him secretly, quietly, to find out where Jesus is and nab him and do away with him before the crowds find out what is going on and can intervene. The trick is going to be to find Jesus, one man amongst hundreds of thousands crowding into and around Jerusalem at that time. Where would he be amongst all those people? How to find him in the dark and narrow streets or the neighboring villages? How to guarantee that they could get him, arrest him, try him and hang him to a tree before the crowds could do anything to stop it? How to keep track amongst all these people? And then the scene changes. Mark does one of his classic scene-in-the-scene bits where he starts a story, inserts another story, and then goes back to the original story. We've seen this a number of times in Mark's gospel. He starts with the religious leaders plotting against Jesus. He puts them in between a different story to give us a bit more context, a bit more information, and then he will finish the first story at the end. This may even, the bit in between, may be a flashback to something that has happened a few days before because in John's gospel, John tells us that this event that Mark calls here happened six days before the Passover. So two days before the Passover, the religious leaders gather to plot against Jesus and then we flash back a few days to something that happened before and then we come back to the present in Mark's story. Mark is likely jumping back a few days to reflect on something that happened before. (coughs) I drank some water and it went down wrong. Excuse me. Trying to drink and sing at the same time doesn't work. Mark chapter 14, go on. Let's go to this flashback. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. This story is similar to another story that happens in the house of a man named Simon, but they're separate events and different Simons. The village of Bethany gives us a clue about the identity of the woman, but John's gospel helps us out by telling us the woman is Mary, sister to Martha. And Lazarus. John tells us that Lazarus is one of the people at the table and that Martha is serving. You know about Mary and Martha? Martha is the one who's always serving. Here she is serving again at this great feast in the house of Simon the leper. And it's Mary, John says, who comes in and pours out the perfume. Mark hasn't told the stories about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so he doesn't complicate his story with names. 
But here is a woman who knows Jesus, has seen Jesus, has heard him teach and witnessed his miracles, has sat at his feet and listened to his words. And now, inspired by this person of Jesus, she makes a decision. She comes up with a plan to honour him, to show how much she loves and respects him, to worship him. She comes with the most expensive thing she has, a jar of very expensive perfume, and pours it on his head. That's already exuberant and excessive. But notice also, she broke the jar. She doesn't just open it up and give a bit and put the rest away. She comes and she breaks the jar and pours every drop of it out. She's keeping none of it for herself. She's giving every last bit to the last drop. This is deliberate. This is not emotional, but it is passionate. And she is immediately criticized. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Indignant is, of course, one of my favorite words in the Gospel of Mark. And we talk about that a lot. Whenever indignant comes up, I look at you like this, don't I? Indignant. And you all say, yes, David, indignant. It's one of my favorite words in the Gospel of Mark. It's used of Jesus when he is thoroughly disgusted with something, like when the disciples stop the little children coming to him, or when the leper says to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's also used of the ten disciples. They're indignant with the arrogance of James and John. And here, some of the folks present are indignant, are thoroughly disgusted with this woman and her display of reverence for Jesus. John tells us that it's Judas who's the one who's objecting. And John goes on to say he is objecting because he wanted to steal the money. <coughs> More than a year's wages. And the money could have been put to better use. And they rebuked her harshly. Not content with criticizing this woman behind her back, they make a public statement of it. And they have a go at her in front of Everyone. And can you just picture the expression on Judas's face as he wags his finger and complains very loudly about how this perfume's value could have been better used to help the poor? Jesus is all about helping the poor. Surely Jesus will be pleased with Judas and friends for pointing out the waste. And then imagine the expression on Judas's face when Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with me, with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Instead of siding with Judas and the critics, Jesus sides with the woman and her act of thoughtful and deliberate devotion. He describes it as a beautiful thing. Jesus agrees that the poor exist and need help, but on this occasion, Mary has done, she has chosen 
the better thing. There will always be opportunities to help the poor, but there will not always be opportunities to honor and worship Jesus in the flesh. He won't always be with him, with them in a physical way. <clears throat> and Jesus says, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Jewish burial customs in the first century involved a lot of spices and perfumes to prevent the dead bodies from stinking as they decomposed. They didn't bury people in the ground and cover them with dirt as we in our Western way tend to do. They would lay bodies inside tombs, cover them with spices and perfume, wrap them with cloth, let the flesh and all the bits that could decompose decompose, and then they would gather the bones and put them in a box, and they'd put the box away. To us that seems very strange, but that's what they did. And so to put someone, to cover someone in spices and perfume so that they didn't stink out the neighborhood was part of their Jewish, part of their customs. And so Jesus describes this perfume as being that for him. They've covered him with enough perfume. She has covered him with enough perfume that when he starts to smell, he won't smell. And all that week, as Jesus went about his business, teaching the crowds, throwing the merchants out of the temple, arguing and debating with the religious leaders, he smelled like a dead body. He smelled like a dead man. As he went past in the crowds, people might sniff and look up expecting to see a funeral procession and instead see Jesus of Nazareth. The religious leaders don't need a spy to find Jesus in the crowd. They just need a dog with a good nose. And as, in a few days' time, Jesus will hang upon the cross, the air catching in his lungs as he's hauled himself up to take another breath, another painful breath, he would have caught the wisps of that perfume, reminding him that this was all for a purpose, that this was all a part of the plan, his father's plan to redeem and save the people who were killing him. And so Jesus says, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Truly I tell you is, of course, amen, amen, which we have spoken about before. Jesus is underlining something important here, something to take note of. This woman's contribution is not to be forgotten not to be ignored, not to be replaced in the message of the good news. Jesus' male disciples have not grasped who he really is and what he has come to do. But this woman, this female disciple, gets it first. She grasps in some way that Jesus is worthy of honour, worthy of reverence, worthy of worship, worthy of her finest treasure, poured out in full with nothing kept back, that Jesus is on his way to his death. And there won't be time to prepare his body on that day. She gets it when all the others, the men who have walked with Jesus and seen him do miracles and heard his teaching and witnessed him and known him, simply have not gotten it. She sees something in Jesus. She makes a decision. She makes a plan. 
and she carries it out to worship him. And now Mark returns to his original story. From that flashback, he goes back to two days before Passover. The religious leaders have gathered to scheme their schemes and plot their plots, and then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas sees something in Jesus, makes a decision, makes a plan, and carries it out to betray him. Two people see the same thing and come to completely different conclusions. They both see Jesus do miracles. They both hear Jesus teaching. They both encounter Jesus' character and his nature. And one of them decides that Jesus deserves worship and is worth everything she has. She makes a plan and she acts on it. The other decides that Jesus deserves death and is worth about 30 pieces of silver. He makes a plan and acts on it. Are there any questions this morning before we conclude? For those visiting with us or not used to this, I'd like to stop and see if there are any questions about anything I've spoken about this morning or in previous weeks. If there are any questions, please raise your hand or shout out. Yes, Mary. Ah, why did they need someone to show Jesus, show them who Jesus was? Everyone knew who Jesus was. Yes, in the daylight, I agree with you. In the daytime, yes, you could probably spot Jesus in a crowd. Although the Bible says there was nothing special about him, he wasn't taller than everyone else, or have a, he probably didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes like our Western pictures show him. He probably just looked like every other Jewish man of his age. And in a crowd, yes, you could probably pick him out in the daytime. But at night time, there's no street lights, there's no lamps, everybody just disappears off and wanders home. There's hundreds of thousands of people have gathered into Jerusalem for Passover. And in that situation, Jesus just needs to turn his cloak inside out and suddenly he's anonymous. And we often read of him disappearing into crowds and escaping from people because he must have just been able to do something, put on, his, put on Peter's cloak or whatever, and off he goes. He disappears. I imagine, and I don't have any scriptural basis for this at all, that Jesus slept in a different place every night because he didn't want them to know where he was until he was ready for them to arrest him. He, he went here, he went there, he would disappear into the crowds. Here he is at Simon the leper's house. We've never heard of Simon the leper before, but that's where he's having dinner on this occasion. So that's my imagination. Um, and, yes, at night time, in those days, no street lights, no electric lamps. How would you know? And how do you march 100 men down the street without having every little boy in the village going, something's happening, Jesus, it's time to run? So, yes, they needed someone to say where exactly Jesus is going to be at exactly the right time, in the middle of the night when no one's going to know, so they can get him. And we'll get to that in Gethsemane in just a few days. That's a good question, though. Thank you. Was that your question, Hans? Have you come, told Mary to get organized this week? No. <laughs> Hans is normally first. Mary was first today. Any other questions? That's just my theory. Yes. 
Yep. Yes. Very good. I need my big ears to hear because you're a bit soft. Um, <coughs> so, Lyndon, there was no question there, was there, Lyndon? Just an observation talking about um, the idea that these women and, and those, Jesus relied on the kindness of those around him to care for him and to look after him. Um, yes, we read in the scriptures about the women who traveled with him to make sure that he was fed and presumably his laundry was done and all the rest of it look after him and his disciples and they're doing those important jobs of Joseph of Arimathea giving his tomb for Jesus to lay in. It was a borrowed, borrowed tomb, all those sorts of things. Jesus did not have vast wealth uh, to do these things with or to look after himself. And the little money they had, Judas kept the money bag and John tells us he used to pinch from it. So any other questions? One more. Yes. Why did they wait until it was dark to arrest Jesus, Mary's now asking? Well, we read just then in Mark, they didn't want to do it publicly because it would cause a riot. So if Jesus is there in the temple preaching his sermons and having a go at the Pharisees and having a go at the Sadducees and suddenly the temple guard returns up and arrests him, all the people in the crowd who love Jesus and think he's the Messiah will grab their sticks and start, there'll be a fight. And the Roman garrison is right there next to the temple. The fortress is right there next to the temple. The Romans will be there in a few minutes and there'll be a bloodbath and everything will be killed and everything will be spoiled. And Jesus knows this as well. Jesus knows he has to die in just the place at just the right time. And so Jesus makes decisions to avoid the blood bluff, to avoid the riot, just as the religious leaders are making decisions to avoid the bloodbath, to avoid the riot. They want to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night try him and have him crucified and have him hung on the cross before Jerusalem wakes up and realizes what's happened. Because by the time Jesus is on the cross with the Romans standing around him, it's too late to riot. He's a dead man. So I think, yes, it's all, yes, preordained with all the terrible convolution that comes with that word, but also individuals are acting to make the preordained stuff happen from both sides, both the side who want to kill Jesus and from Jesus' side. He is acting in a way so that just the right time, in just the right way, he dies for the sins of the world. Yes, good questions. Good questions this morning. Anything else before we conclude? I remind you, if you do have questions, send me an email, send me a message. I'd love to have a phone call or a conversation with you about these things. One more. All right. This is the Jesus Christ superstar question. Uh, So Hans is asking, did Judas expect Jesus to die when he betrayed him or was he trying to just motivate him to launch his kingdom? 
Um, that's the Jesus Christ superstar picture that the musical says that Judas was just trying to push Jesus. Come on, Jesus, claim your kingdom. We'll force this to a head. I don't think there's anything in the scriptures that says that. Judas knew what he was about. He, He knew that if they arrested him, they were going to kill him. Maybe, who knows? I don't know. We have no more motivation for these characters than what we read in the Gospels, and we don't have a great deal of information about that, apart from... And that's the point I'm trying to get at this morning. Thank you. You That's a good segue to what I want to say, is that everyone has a decision to make about Jesus. Everyone. Some will make it with all the information in the world. Some will make it out of ignorance. And some ignorant people will come to a different conclusion to other ignorant people. And some very well-informed people will come to a different conclusion to other well-informed people. Just telling someone everything there is to know about Jesus is no guarantee that they will become followers of Jesus. And that's why we can't educate people into faith. Just telling someone everything there is to know won't guarantee faith. Don't get me wrong. I think it's better to know as much about Jesus as you can. But ultimately, everyone will have to make a decision. Is Jesus worthy of worship as Savior and Lord? Or is he worth 30 pieces of silver or less? We cannot make that decision for anyone else, nor can anyone else make it for us. That's a decision we need to make as individuals. And having made that decision, we should make a plan on how we will live as a result and act on it. Jesus said of this woman with the perfume, she did what she could. She brought the thing she had of greatest value and gave it to Jesus. She gave it all to Jesus. And he asked the same of you and of me. What is the thing that you have that's of greatest value? What can you pour out for Jesus? How will you worship and honour and revere him with your life? Beautiful song to finish with this morning. I have not much to give thee, Lord, for that great love which made thee mine. I have not much to give thee, Lord, but all I have is thine. Whatever it is that the Lord has blessed you with, your health, your strength, your family, your riches, your talents, your energy, bring it to him. Give it to him. Honor him with all that you have and all that you are. It's not much. Not much in comparison to what he has done for us. but he asks us to give it to him. And then he'll bless it and use it and multiply it and pour it back upon us. This woman, all she had was this one jar of expensive perfume. She gave it to Jesus. Probably thought, well, that's the last we'll ever hear about that. But we're still talking about her 2,000 years later. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Nothing given to Jesus will go to waste. Let's pray.
Father God, this morning I pray that we would be inspired and encouraged by your word to us today. Father God, it is beyond our understanding that two people could see the same event, could have that same encounter with Jesus and come to completely different conclusions and act in entirely different ways. Father God, we see it in our own lives, in our own world, where we see your brothers and sisters and those who've grown up with us in the church or seem to have such passionate and vibrant faith have walked away from you. Father God, I pray that you would call them back. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would draw men and women to yourself and boys and girls to come and kneel at the feet of Jesus and acknowledge him as who he is. Father God, if there are people here this morning who do not believe that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, speak to them now by your Holy Spirit. Touch them. Draw them. Light a fire in their heart that cannot be quenched until they bring themselves to a place of repentance and faith. Father God, for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, I pray that that would be the case this morning, that we would bring all that we have, all that we are, all that we're capable of, and give it to Jesus. Help us, Father God, to do what we can to honour and worship and live for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.